Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic abuse, violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In the dead of night, 29-year-old Tommy Gilbert Jr. crept outside his friend Peter Smith's apartment. At one point, the two men had been inseparable. Over the past few months though, Peter had started blowing Tommy off. Tommy had tried to get through to him, but nothing worked. He clenched his fists and snuck closer to the window. He couldn't take the rejection anymore. The unanswered calls, the looks of disdain from their friends, they tore him apart. Before, he'd been heartbroken, but now he was angry. Peter had humiliated him. Tommy's life was in shambles. He couldn't let his old friend get away with it. There was no other choice. He would make Peter Smith pay. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll meet Thomas Gilbert Jr., a young socialite who was used to getting what he wanted. Tommy's parents paid for everything from his elite private education to his swanky apartment. But all his wealth and privilege weren't enough to save him or his family from who he became. Next time, we'll see how Tommy's troubling behavior escalates from disturbing to deadly. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Thomas Gilbert Jr. was born into a life of luxury in July 1984. His parents, Shelley Ray and Thomas Gilbert Sr., both came from prominent families. Thanks to their wealth and status, Tommy had an idyllic childhood. On warm evenings, father and son played baseball on the front lawn of their large, elegant home while Shelley watched from the porch. They attended ultra-exclusive country clubs and summered in the Hamptons, that's where Tommy first learned to swim and then to surf, a hobby that would become one of his greatest passions. When he was just four, Shelley and Tom Sr. relocated to New York City. They were determined to give their son the best education possible, and that meant the Buckley School, a prestigious all-boys academy in Manhattan. 
Tommy aced the admission exam and was accepted into the nursery program. Surrounded by boys from similar backgrounds, he fit right in. From the start, Tom Sr. pushed his son to excel at everything he did. No activity was just for fun. In his mind, childhood was all about laying the groundwork to ensure his son lived up to his full potential. Yet, if Tommy felt any pressure, he hardly showed it. At least, not at first. He got straight A's in school, was a member of the student council, and captain of the football team. With long blonde hair, piercing blue eyes, and some impressive credentials, he seemed like the quintessential golden boy. But even back then, cracks were starting to emerge. You see, Tommy was always a little shy. As a boy, though, he was usually able to make friends without too much trouble. Then in sixth grade, something changed. Tommy later explained it as if a switch was turned off in his brain. Suddenly, it felt like his social skills had just vanished. Conversation became difficult, and Tommy couldn't understand why. The change also impacted his relationship with his father. He started having violent dreams in which he and Tom Sr. attacked each other. In one nightmare, he kicked his father repeatedly, screaming that he wanted to be left alone. Pretty soon, that anger bled into the real world. He started to resent the way his dad pushed him and stubbornly refused to do what he was told. His behavior at school got worse too. In the seventh grade, he became a bully, started drinking, and smoked weed with his friends. By ninth grade, he was committing vandalism around town for kicks. He was clearly not doing well, but Tommy's parents didn't want to come down too hard on their son for his behavior. In their minds, it could all be explained away as teenage angst. Plus, Tommy's academic performance was just as perfect as ever. To Tom Sr. and Shelley, that was what really mattered. So despite his unruly behavior, Tommy finished school without any trouble. In June of 2000, he graduated from Buckley and was accepted to Deerfield Academy, an elite boarding school in Massachusetts. But the summer before the school year started, things took a turn for the worse. One of Tommy's former classmates asked if he could stay at Tommy's house for a few days. Tommy didn't personally like the boy, but they ran in the same social circles. He was afraid that if he said no, that would reflect poorly on his social life, so reluctantly he agreed. The boy stayed with the Gilberts at their Hamptons home for four days. Not much is known about what happened during that time, but soon, Tommy was convinced that he'd caught depression from his classmate. Before we dive into the psychology here, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. It's important to note up front that depression is not contagious. Some studies suggest that the mental health of young people can be influenced by the mental health of their friends, but that's not the same thing as being able to, quote, catch depression. There isn't even any evidence that the classmate had a mental illness in the first place, but Tommy was convinced otherwise and blamed his classmate for his negative feelings. Things weren't looking good, but Tommy still headed to Deerfield in September to start high school. Again, he flourished in the classroom, enrolling in advanced mathematics and even learning Mandarin. He also joined the basketball, baseball, football, and cross-country teams. 
He was great at keeping up appearances, but at the same time, he was having more problems with his fellow students. During his junior year, he shared a dorm with a boy named Bob. The room was tiny, barely big enough to accommodate the boy's essential items. Perhaps it was because of how close they were to each other, but soon, Tommy became convinced that Bob was contaminating him. He grew increasingly anxious about germs, threw away any clothing Bob came into contact with, and washed his hands obsessively. By the time summer rolled around, he was more than ready to head back to the Hamptons, away from Bob and their contaminated room. His parents immediately noticed that something was off with their son. He was constantly on edge, preoccupied with germs and his new fear of getting dirty. At first, Shelley thought he was just cranky from stress. After all, Tommy juggled a full course load and multiple extracurricular activities. Tom Sr., on the other hand, believed there was something seriously wrong. And eventually, Shelley had to admit he was right. The Gilberts desperately wanted their son to get help and tried to convince him to see a doctor, but he adamantly refused. Even the mere suggestion set him off. Ultimately, Tom Sr. and Shelley decided it was a fight they couldn't win. Tommy was doing well in school, so they didn't want to stand in his way. Maybe he was just going through a weird phase. They dropped the subject of therapy for a time. In 2003, at age 19, Tommy graduated from the prestigious Deerfield School with honors. He was accepted to Princeton in the Department of Economics, the same program his father, uncle, and grandfather had gone through. But his mental health was still on the decline. The only hope his parents had was that Princeton might be the fresh start Tommy needed. In September, Tom Sr. and Shelley got ready to send their son off to college. The university was about a two and a half hour drive from their house in the Hamptons. Excited for a new chapter in their son's life, the Gilberts loaded up the car with Tommy's things, squeezed inside, and got ready to hit the road. But at the last minute, Tommy's mood suddenly changed. He demanded that his father stay behind. He claimed he wanted to spend some time alone with his mom. But Tom Sr. really wanted to come too. It was a special moment. Plus, he was desperate to repair their struggling relationship. After a tense argument, Tom Sr. finally got his way. He climbed back into the car, ignoring Tommy's seething frustrations. The mood was tense as the family began the 145-mile journey to New Jersey. Somewhere along the way, Tom Sr. noticed a light blinking on the dashboard and calmly told his son to pull over to get gas. The station was near the JFK airport, a fact Tom Sr. barely registered. But Tommy was irate at the suggestion. He screamed that the airport was contaminated and he didn't want to go near it. For the second time that day, Tom Sr. insisted. Tommy swung the car into the station and filled up the tank, but the incident was the final nail in the coffin. By the time they reached Princeton, the young man was inconsolable. He believed all of his luggage had been dirtied. He refused to touch any of it, leaving it to his parents to unpack. They assured Tommy everything was safe and begged him to see a doctor. But again, Tommy refused. Tom Sr. and Shelley eventually left, dejected. 
but the event set the tone for Tommy's future at Princeton. Coming up, Tommy's path to success takes a sudden detour. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. Tommy Gilbert's anxiety intensified the longer he remained at Princeton. Soon, the 19-year-old was insisting that Bob, his former roommate from Deerfield, was somehow contaminating the university, even though he wasn't a student there. He changed his clothes three to four times a day, wearing different outfits on different parts of the campus. Often, he'd throw things away after wearing them a single time, afraid they'd been compromised. And for the first time, his trouble started extending to his academic performance too. In the past, he'd managed to get good grades with minimal effort, but now he was up against some of the brightest minds in the country, trying to complete work that was far more difficult than he was used to. To succeed, he'd need to work harder than he ever had before. But rather than push himself to shine in class, Tommy took the opposite route. He joined the Charter Club, one of the wildest frats on campus. Before long, he was drinking heavily and using drugs, marijuana, LSD, cocaine. He would take anything he could get his hands on. All the partying quickly got him into trouble. In his first year, he was caught with drugs in his car, put on academic probation and suspended from school. Instead of using the time away to clean up his act, he traveled to Charleston, South Carolina to surf. Tom Sr. was mortified. His son's behavior flew in the face of the family legacy. This just wasn't the Gilbert way. Even so, he and Shelley couldn't bear to punish him. They believed Tommy was sick. So while their son spent his days cruising the waves of the Atlantic Ocean, his parents bankrolled it all. Still, they tried to intervene as best they could. At their insistence, Tommy finally began seeing a psychiatrist in Charleston named Dr. Kevin Spicer. Tommy confessed his fears of contamination and germs. He also told Dr. Spicer about his deep hostility for his father and the irrational delusions driving it. 
Tommy told Dr. Spicer that he believed his father was killing his thoughts and trying to steal his soul. He was convinced Tom Sr. was somehow responsible for his mental condition and was trying to dominate him through mind control. After hearing these alarming admissions, Dr. Spicer diagnosed Tommy with depressive disorder and possible psychosis. He prescribed Risperdal, an antipsychotic drug. Tommy took the medication for a little while, but quickly stopped, complaining about the side effects. He remained in Charleston for the next few months, splitting his time surfing and attending sessions with Dr. Spicer. By December 2004, the doctor had also diagnosed Tommy with possible schizophrenia and prescribed more drugs. Tommy refused to accept the treatment, which isn't too uncommon. The side effects of mood-regulating medication can be strong, and that sometimes deters people from taking them. But there may have been another cause at play. Studies show that patients with schizophrenia often refuse treatment because they don't believe anything is wrong with them, a condition called anosognosia. It's possible Tommy refused to take his medication because he didn't think he needed treatment in the first place. This could explain why Tommy was so resistant to seeing a doctor at all. In his mind, there was no need. But without the proper medicine, Tommy's condition continued to get worse. In February, he started having suicidal ideations and called 911. He was taken to the hospital in Charleston, but had a change of heart once he arrived. He walked out before anyone could treat him. Less than a month later, he was back in the ER, this time at the behest of Dr. Spicer. Again, Tommy discharged himself before anyone could help. Dr. Spicer urged Tommy's parents to forcibly admit him to a psychiatric facility, convinced Tommy was deeply disturbed and potentially dangerous. Yet the Gilberts refused. Shelley was terrified that if she and Tom Sr. angered their son any further, he'd shut them out completely. Instead, they tried another plan. By 2006, Tommy's parents were pressuring their son to go back to Princeton and finish his degree. Despite everything, Tom Sr. still had hope that his son could turn things around and make something of himself. In the fall, Tommy finally agreed and returned to school. At Princeton, he began seeing a new psychiatrist, Dr. Les Lynette, who diagnosed him with a long list of mental conditions. These included attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Tommy started treatment, and for a while, it seemed like he was finally taking control of his life. But the success was short-lived. In May, he called 911 again. He told the dispatcher in a panicked voice that he was overdosing on cocaine. An ambulance and several police officers showed up at his house to find him lying on the floor of his apartment, breathing heavily and sweating profusely. He claimed he'd gone on a three-day drug binge, snorting copious amounts of cocaine and ingesting several psychedelic mushrooms. The ambulance took him to the hospital and he stayed there overnight. The next afternoon, he became frantic and refused to cooperate with the hospital staff, so they put him in restraints. When one of the nurses tried to help him, he viciously headbutted her, dropping her to the floor. The attack landed him with assault charges, though they were eventually dropped. This latest brush with the law seemed to do a number on Tommy. In the months that followed, he managed to clean up his act a bit. 
He continued going to Princeton and spent the summer at his family's home in the Hamptons. A few weeks before he went back to school, he met a woman named Lila Chase. Lila liked Tommy immediately. He was tall, lean, and muscular, with great hair and gorgeous eyes. And Tommy liked her too. She didn't judge him and had an easy way about her that made him feel comfortable. The two started dating and quickly fell into a comfortable routine. Tommy went back to Princeton during the week. On the weekends, he and Lila spent time together back in the Hamptons. He taught her how to surf and they passed the day away riding the waves. When Tommy's parents met Lila, they were thrilled. They appreciated her gentle personality and the stability she brought to their son's life. In their eyes, she was just what Tommy needed to get back on track. But Tommy's delusions were getting worse. During the same time, he saw several psychiatrists and sometimes even told Lila about his sessions. One of his recurring fixations was a belief that the comedy show Saturday Night Live was making fun of him. He believed many of their sketches were specifically crafted to make him look bad. Lila had a knack for tempering Tommy's more paranoid thoughts. So when he expressed his worries to her, she was able to calm him down. She reassured Tommy that the jokes had nothing to do with him and he believed her. He may have needed Lila more than she knew. He opened up to her about his complicated relationship with his father and about his fears that Tom Sr. was controlling his brain. Tommy's feelings about his father were often contradictory and extremely intense. Lila tried to reason with him, but it wasn't easy. The subject of his father seemed to be the one thing she couldn't help with. For the next few years, their relationship continued to grow despite Tommy's issues. Then, in 2008, everything changed. That's when Lila discovered Tommy had left narcotics in her car. She'd known since the beginning of their relationship that Tommy used drugs, but she had always assumed he was a casual user. Finding so many narcotics in his possession was extremely alarming. So, Lila gave him an ultimatum. It was either her or the drugs. As they sat in the bedroom at his parents' house, Tommy paused to think. Then he grabbed an obscenely large bag of cocaine from his closet, led Lila to the bathroom, and let her watch as he flushed the entire stash down the toilet. Lila was thrilled. Pretty soon, Tommy moved into her parents' house in Bronxville. He was happy to be away from his father and the constant barrage of questions about his future. His new living situation came with a few rules. As long as he was living with Lila, Tommy wouldn't use drugs. He would also continue going to therapy and getting treatment. For a while, things were good. It seemed like Tommy's drug use had finally subsided and the pair were back to their old routine. Pretty soon, both families were urging Tommy to propose. But dealing with pressure wasn't one of his strong suits. By the spring of 2009, 24-year-old Tommy was back to using drugs. Lila distanced herself and their relationship collapsed. Despite the breakup, they remained friends. Lila even let him continue living in her parents' house while he finished up his last year at Princeton. The end of the relationship didn't seem to affect Tommy at school and his final year at college passed without incident. In June 2009, 
He stood on the lawn at Princeton's Nassau Hall, posing for a photo in his graduation gown. It was a happy day for the Gilbert family, one they weren't sure would ever come. Tom Sr. bragged that his son was going to run a hedge fund, sure that Tommy would continue the family legacy. He was sure that with a degree from Princeton, Tommy's path would be bright and successful. But Tommy's own vision for his life looked a little different. He didn't have the drive to succeed that his father imagined. The Princeton diploma did help him secure an internship at a big investment firm that summer, but he was quickly fired after getting caught playing video games at work. For some reason, Tommy then decided to start his own hedge fund. He gathered up investors and made a business plan, but when the initial excitement faded, Tommy lost interest and the fun inevitably went under. With nowhere else to go, he reluctantly moved back in with his parents, spending his days surfing and doing drugs. In April 2011, Tom Sr. launched his own hedge fund, Wainscott Capital. He wanted Tommy to take on a special role in the company, enlisted him as the market strategist on the official website. Tommy was supposed to be following in the footsteps of the Gilbert men who came before him, but instead he seemed disinterested, no matter how much his father tried to push him. Still, Tom Sr. refused to give up. He was desperate to ensure a successful life for his son, as long as it conformed to his idea of success. A good job would lead to a good life, and then he hoped everything would fall into place. But it didn't. Coming up, a failed relationship and social rejection pushed Tommy to the edge. Now, back to the story. By the fall of 2011, 27-year-old Tommy Gilbert was a Princeton graduate working on building his own hedge fund. At least, that's what he told people. Really, he lived with his parents and spent most of his days surfing or playing tennis at the country club. His mental health hadn't been great for years, but now he was really struggling. In the past, he'd been overcome by fears of germs and contamination. Those had gradually shifted to concerns about his tenuous social status. He didn't have many friends and his deep social anxiety made it difficult for him to meet new people. He was also growing increasingly frustrated with his parents. Tom Sr. questioned him constantly about his professional pursuits. He might have hoped that having conversations with Tommy about work might bring them closer together, but Tommy just found the nonstop interrogation irritating. He'd tell his dad that he was working on it, then spend the rest of the day on the water. One day at the beach, as Tommy got ready to paddle out, he ran into an old schoolmate from Buckley, Peter Smith Jr. The young man asked if he could join Tommy and the two headed out into the surf. As the waves ebbed and flowed, Peter and Tommy sat on their boards chatting. Peter told Tommy that he'd graduated from law school and was working on launching an e-commerce startup. Tommy shared his own plans for his hedge fund, making it sound more successful than it really was. He also confided in Peter that he hated living with his parents, especially his dad. Peter's face brightened. It seemed like fate. He had an apartment in Williamsburg and was looking for a roommate. 
Tommy was overjoyed by the prospect and raced home to ask his father to cover the rent. Mr. Gilbert agreed, and within a week, Tommy had moved into Peter's place. Peter was popular, charismatic, and well-connected. Living with him did wonders for Tommy's social life. Peter fully took Tommy under his wing, inviting him on trips, beach parties, and gatherings with his socialite friends. Tommy didn't always know how to socialize, but the group welcomed him, largely at Peter's insistence. When it came to dating, though, Tommy was even more uncomfortable. He struggled to speak with women, becoming quiet and withdrawn. He had his fair share of interested ladies, but they quickly got bored of his distant personality and left him alone. There was only one woman whose attention Tommy did desperately want. Her name was Lizzie Fraser, a socialite with a reputation for hard partying. Despite his massive crush, Tommy couldn't muster the courage to ask her out. Instead, he contented himself with his new bustling social life. He finally had a circle of friends and spent nearly every day surfing, doing drugs and partying with them. Of course, that lifestyle didn't change anything when it came to his professional prospects. His hedge fund never took off, leaving him with no job successes to speak of. He had absolutely no income of his own and relied solely on a weekly allowance from his parents. He briefly tried his hand at bartending, but his fear of germs and contamination got the better of him. Plus, he found that socializing with customers, a necessity of the job, was too demanding. He quit within a matter of weeks. In 2011, he started a new business called Mameluke Capital Fund. But his new company was as unsuccessful as his previous one. Tommy was terrible at pitching his new business and could barely scare up any interest. He was frustrated at his situation, especially when he compared himself to his roommate. Peter was well-liked by everyone and had a charming personality that made networking easy. He was also financially successful, something Tommy definitely couldn't claim. Peter had the life Tommy desperately wanted and resentment started to get in the way. Tommy compared himself to Peter incessantly, a habit that only made him feel worse. Studies have shown that engaging in social comparisons can ruin a person's well-being. Those who compare themselves to others often are more likely to engage in destructive behavior, have low self-esteem, depression, and neuroticism. It can lead to a vicious cycle of dissatisfaction, resulting in both deep unhappiness and, in Tommy's case, smoldering resentment. His bitterness at his friend's success eventually evolved into a dangerous paranoia. He suspected Peter of hacking into his computer and trying to steal his ideas. He shared his fears with his new therapist, Dr. Susan Evans, who assured him it wasn't true. He also told Dr. Evans that he was considering buying a gun, saying he needed some way to protect himself from people who were trying to sabotage him. In the apartment he shared with Peter, Tommy acted sullen and entitled. He refused to clean up after himself or do any chores, and even deliberately paid rent late. Peter started to worry about his roommate's disturbing behavior, confiding in his friends that something was seriously wrong with Tommy. The situation at the apartment eventually became impossible to ignore. Finally, Peter confronted Tommy about his mess and the issue with paying rent on time. 
To his surprise, Tommy exploded in anger. He accused Peter of breaking into his bank account and ransacking his room. Peter was baffled and decided to keep his distance from Tommy. It was just impossible to reason with him. It wasn't until 2012 that Tommy had a slight change of luck. One evening, Lizzie Fraser, the socialite he had a crush on, called him for a ride back to the Hamptons. Tommy immediately dropped everything and drove 45 minutes to get her. The trip must have been the perfect bonding experience because shortly afterwards, the pair was dating. The new relationship brightened Tommy's mood. It even helped improve things between him and Peter, who was also dating someone new around this time. But the calm didn't last very long. That summer, he and Peter got into another fight and it turned physical. After that, Tommy moved out of the apartment. The two men were cordial to each other, but their friendship had cooled and Tommy couldn't stand it. He became furious with Peter and resentful all over again. Tommy couldn't stop obsessing over his personal failures. He had no job. His hedge fund was a major flop. His parents paid for his entire life. Some people might consider that last detail a good thing. Anything that Tommy needed, his parents had covered. His rent, country club memberships, and any extra expenses too. His mom, Shelly, was particularly soft, sometimes sending him extra money without letting her husband know. To her, financially supporting Tommy seemed like the best way to help him. Meanwhile, Tom Sr. was still trying to pressure Tommy into getting more involved with his growing hedge fund, Wayne Scott Capital. Since Tommy had an official role at the company and was on the payroll, Tom Sr. expected to see some kind of result. Reports, calls with investors, anything. But Tommy didn't show any interest. On the rare occasions that he did attend investor meetings, he sat there silently, impatiently waiting to leave. Despite Tom Sr.'s insistence, Tommy wanted nothing to do with his father or his company. He claimed he was determined to go at it alone, even though he didn't seem actually interested in doing the work that was required. But Tom Sr. wasn't ready to give up on his son just yet. He emailed and texted Tommy dozens of times, inviting him to business and investor meetings and asking for his advice on trends in the market. Almost all of the messages went unanswered. In 2012, Tommy told his mother to give his dad a message. Stop contacting me. As tensions rose, things took a turn for the worse in his romantic life too. In July of 2013, Lizzie broke up with him, but Tommy wasn't ready to let the relationship go. After the split, he stalked Lizzie, showing up at parties uninvited to watch her. Sometimes he'd go to places where her friends were hanging out, sit at a table nearby and listen for any mention of her name. This unsettling behavior took a toll on his social life. Lizzie's friends and many of his own started to avoid him. By this point, Peter was also distant around Tommy. As his social world collapsed, Tommy started to believe Peter was the real root of all his problems. So he started terrorizing his former roommate. At some point, he even snuck into Peter's family's home and slept in the basement. Tommy wasn't subtle with his squatting. 
He treated the house as his own, doing drugs in the basement and even bringing girls over. It wasn't long before Peter caught Tommy red-handed. He was shocked by this flagrant invasion of privacy, but he didn't involve the police. Instead, he just demanded that Tommy leave and finally give him some peace. After the confrontation, Peter flat out refused to respond to Tommy's repeated calls and told their friend group to stop inviting him to events. Unsurprisingly, Tommy refused to accept the cold shoulder. A few weeks later, he showed up at a poker party Peter was hosting, uninvited. Peter told Tommy to beat it. Tommy fired back and soon both men were shouting in full view of all of their friends. In between all the yelling, Peter called Tommy a loser. Suddenly, the entire party went silent. Everyone avoided Tommy's eyes and no one came to his defense. Tommy finally saw the writing on the wall. None of his so-called friends actually wanted to stand by him. Mortified, he ran away. Tommy was more than humiliated. He felt utterly and completely alone. Becoming a social outcast was one of his deepest fears, and soon his embarrassment morphed into a white-hot rage. He now knew Peter was to blame for all of it. His ruined social life and even his failed relationship. In a violent rage, he launched a huge flagpole through the Smith family kitchen window, shattering it to pieces. Normally, that kind of behavior would land someone with criminal charges, but Peter Smith Sr. decided to let it go, knowing it would destroy Tommy's professional life. Tom Sr. agreed to pay for all of the damages to the property, and just like that, the incident was brushed under the rug. But Tommy didn't seem at all concerned. In fact, he didn't seem to think he'd done anything wrong. He tried calling Peter several times, insisting the whole thing had been a harmless prank. When Peter made it clear he wasn't interested in repairing their relationship, Tommy pivoted. If Peter wasn't willing to talk it out, then he would have to use force. On October 14th, Tommy showed up at Peter's Williamsburg apartment and assaulted him, kneeing him in the face almost 20 times. When a neighbor came to Peter's rescue, Tommy began screaming that he was the one who'd been attacked before fleeing down the street. Peter called the police and Tommy was charged with assault. The news rippled through Peter and Tommy's friend group, shocking everyone. Some people reached out to Tommy, trying to understand why in the world he would do such a terrible thing. But as usual, Tommy was in complete denial. He seemed unable to grasp the gravity of the situation, and the lack of punishment likely only made him bolder. Even after such a violent act, Tommy was able to avoid any real conviction. Once again, his assault charges were dismissed as long as he agreed to mandatory anger management counseling. Peter did file a restraining order against Tommy, hoping to finally put some real distance between himself and his former roommate. Meanwhile, one of Tommy's therapists, Dr. Susan Evans, also heard about the attack. With a creeping horror, she remembered Tommy's comment about wanting to buy a gun. She hadn't thought much of it back then, but now it felt all too real. 
she filed a report with New York State's Department of Criminal Justice Services. Tommy's name was added to a database, effectively barring him from purchasing firearms. Throughout this process, Tommy's mental health completely deteriorated. He became deeply paranoid, convinced people were trying to steal from him. He decided to stop taking his medications and, as a result, his condition got markedly worse. He told his doctors that he was being harassed and threatened by unnamed enemies and that his apartment had been broken into. On May 11, 2014, Tommy was at the end of his rope. He figured that if he really was in constant danger, then he should do something about it. He couldn't legally buy a gun, but that wasn't much of an obstacle. He went online, searching for a seller who wouldn't ask any questions. Eventually, he came across Facebook's Gun for Sale forum. A person in Ohio was selling a Glock 40 caliber semi-automatic. Tommy agreed to buy the gun for $575. He drove all the way to Ohio to pick it up himself. With the weapon in his hands, Tommy finally felt safe, even powerful. For the first time in his life, he was in control. From now on, if anyone tried to humiliate him, he would make them pay. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with another episode. For more information on Thomas Gilbert Jr., amongst the many sources we used, we found Golden Boy, A Murder Among Manhattan Elite by John Glatt, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Sara Hussein, edited by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Katovich. I'm Lainey Hobbs. 